forming an ally of the two clans, the now very powerful Duterte clan and the Marcos clan in the presidential palace is going to be really quite formidable for liberal forces in the Philippines. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy. Ferdinand Marcos Jr. was elected president of the Philippines. If that name sounds familiar to you, it is because he is the son of Ferdinand Marcos Sr., the brutal kleptocrat who ruled the Philippines for nearly 20 years. Marcos Jr., who is commonly known as Bong Bong, took office on June 30th, succeeding Rodrigo Duterte, whose six-year term was marked by a sharp deterioration of human rights in the Philippines. This includes a so-called war on drugs in which several thousands of people were extrajudicially killed by state security forces. His government promised President Rodrigo Duterte's third State of the Nation address will be his best. It was meant to highlight his administration's achievement over the past two years. But it ended up becoming one of the most chaotic national events in recent times. The illegal drugs war will not be sidelined. Instead, it will be as relentless and chilling, if you will, as on the day it began. Bong Bong Marcos's vice president is Rodrigo Duterte's daughter, Sarah Duterte. In the Philippines, a vote for president is separate from a vote for vice president, but Bongbong Marcos and Sara Duterte formed an alliance, and both were overwhelmingly elected as president and vice president. To help explain this new chapter of politics in the Philippines is Dr. Tom Smith, principal lecturer in international relations for the University of Portsmouth and the academic director to the Royal Air Force College. We kick off our conversation by discussing the misdeeds and abuses that characterize the rule of Ferdinand Marcos Sr., which we use as an entry point to discuss the modern-day dynastic politics of the Philippines. Dr. Tom Smith goes into detail about the kinds of domestic and foreign policy decisions that the new administration will face, including the careful balancing act required to maintain an alliance with the United States while also managing its relationship with China. Now here is my conversation with Dr. Tom Smith. Just to kick off, could you remind listeners, take us back and explain, describe like the sins of, of the father of Ferdinand Marcos Sr. Remind listeners of who he was and what happened with him briefly. And that will set up the rest of the conversation. During the 70s, Ferdinand Marcos Sr. was elected to be the president of the Philippines. 
kind of a boom time of the Philippines, actually, when the Asian economies, the Asian tiger economies were really starting to grow. The Philippines was well placed to take advantage of globalization. This is in the death throes of the war in Vietnam. And the Philippines had been a strong ally of the United States during that period. And Ferdinand Marcos came to power and was well supported by the United States. But the sins of the father, as you refer to, those are the ones that everybody remembers now. So, I mean, the headlines really over that period of his reign are a period of martial law, which he instituted from 1972 to 81. These are well documented, so I, I feel confident in citing those, but we're talking around 3,000 known extrajudicial killings, which are well cited and referenced in a fairly notorious Amnesty International report. Reports have around 35,000 people were tortured under his reign, 70,000 incarcerated, and a whole plethora of other human rights abuses which were orchestrated at his behest, but it was actually the AFP, the Armed Forces of the Philippines, which conducted most of these. He did invent some other paramilitary units, police units, to undertake some of these as well. But that's kind of the dark period, which all ended in the early 80s with the People Power Revolution and the ousting of Ferdinand Marcos Sr. And he went in exile to Hawaii through the United States. And his rule was also marked by a plundering of state coffers to personally enrich himself and his family. He left office in Philippines, was forced out, a extremely wealthy person. Indeed. I mean, this really is a scandal of, of legendary proportions and has been very well documented fairly recently, actually, in, in documentary films made about Ferdinand's wife, Imelda Marcos, who, who's still alive and back in the Philippines, sporting some of the same luxurious goods that she's been accused of plundering during her time as the First Lady. I was always criticized for being excessive, but that is mothering. 3,000 pairs of shoes. Shipping animals from Africa. Picasso. Michelangelo. The demonstrators stormed the gates of the palace to take back what they said was theirs. There was a big reception. I had to wear jewelry. And we were told, get into the helicopter. So I put diamonds in diapers. It saved us later on to pay the lawyers. I mean, he was shipped out on a U.S. military aircraft, first to Guam, then to Hawaii, with, as legend have it, buckets loads of cash, U.S. dollars, famous artworks, as well as having pilfered much of the resources of the Philippines away in Swiss bank accounts over the years and real estate around the world and what have you. So the plunder, as it's referred to in the Philippines, is well known and notorious. That's not to say there's been much of a criminal investigation into it. The closest we've got to that is cases pending against Imelda Marcos, the matriarch of the family, but now the son has been elected as president, I don't expect those cases to go very far. Yeah, you mentioned Imelda Marcos's notorious spending habits, and I couldn't help but be bemused at this image I saw of Marcos Jr. sitting with his mother in the Philippines. And in the background is a Picasso painting that almost certainly was purchased through ill-gotten gains from the you know, raiding state coffers. The brazenness to take that picture and load that in front of the world tells you an awful lot, really, of the sort of characters we're talking about and how they feel 
a divine right to rule and that the things that they acquired, the wealth that they acquired, which they still hold on to, which still makes them very powerful, a very powerful political force in contemporary Filipino politics is theirs and nobody else is to care of. So those pictures did shock people. The documentary I referred to previously, the Kingmaker documentary about Imelda's wealth and her famous shoe collection and all the rest of it really is an excellent watch for anybody interested. So how is it that Ferdinand Marcos Jr., known colloquially as Bong Bong, was able to rehabilitate his family's reputation in the Philippines, given the terrible sins and misrule of his father, with whom he shares a name? Yeah, I mean, the answer to that is going to be quite complex, Mark. He didn't really try to rehabilitate the name. He lent into the name. The Marcos brand, as it is, the family dynasty, is what gives him credence, what gives him power. He didn't in any way try to diminish that, apologize for his father. In in fact, he when questioned about that, and he avoided questions as much as possible during the election campaign, he flatly refused to condemn his father's crimes of the past. And they've never admitted to the plunder. They've never admitted to the human rights abuses. When you have a system in which somebody can, you know, the son of a dictator, a reviled dictator with an international reputation can assume power then, you have to look more forensically at actually the, the politics of the Philippines and how it elects its leaders. And that's through a very transactional form of politics. At the bottom of the electoral pyramid in the Philippines is the barangay captain, the local village captain. He is nine times out of ten tethered to the local mayor then governor and then senator and at the top of that pyramid sits the president so when you're voting for your local village captain the man that has the most say in your life who can affect change in your life the most who can give you fresh water food security in in your own village that vote is then tethered all the way up the pyramid to the president and so the transactional nature of the politics in the philippines means that a vote for certain barangay captains who have their loyalty to the marcoses is already cemented. And this election really proved the sort of client relationship of the politics there in the Philippines. So it's like an old school political machine. Yeah, or a Ponzi, you might want to call it. We refer to this, you know, in the West as various different forms. But in the Philippines, it's really quite entrenched now. And of course, there are other aspects to it as well. I mean, quite frankly, let's call a spade a spade. Votes are bought. Um, Manny Pacquiao, who wrote running the election, the famous boxer, and came at a distant fourth or fifth with less than 10% of the vote, was never going to be a credible candidate. And this is a Western-facing character because his boxing campaign very brazenly was offering money at the side of stages to potential voters of him, election rallies, where people are paid to attend rallies and then vote for people. It's not hidden. It's quite open, that transactional nature. And into this sort of transactional mix... How does Sarah Duterte fix? Because there seems to be a lot of intrigue in her decision not to run for president to succeed her father, Rodrigo Duterte, but rather to vie for the vice presidency, which is elected separately. But I take it she formed an alliance with Marcos. That's right. Yeah. So presidents and vice presidents are elected on different ballots. So you vote for each separately. But Marcos and Sara Duterte did ally together, effectively forming a unified ticket together. I think a lot of people were surprised that Sara didn't run. 
and just take up the mantle from her father, continue his policies, you know, the drug war and the rest of it, the sort of anti-American rhetoric and continue that, particularly as there's an ICC investigation pending against the father, Rodrigo Duterte, and obviously having daughter in office would help shield him from that. So I was quite surprised that she didn't run. Um, I'm not surprised, therefore, that she went for vice president and forming an ally of the two clans, the now very powerful Duterte clan and the Marcos clan in the presidential palace is going to be really quite formidable for liberal forces in the Philippines to make any inroads in the next six years. But what that really means is it tees up Sarah as the front runner for really the next election in 2028 to be the next president, I imagine. Because presidents serve a single six-year term, right? That's right, yeah. I mean, the constitution does prevent anybody running again, but I suspected that Rodrigo Duterte, especially during the pandemic, thought about overturning that constitution and making an amendment to that. He didn't in the end, but as a powerful president certainly could, and that's not beyond the realms of possibility they could change the constitution on that. So Marcos and Sarah Duterte, they didn't just like eke out a victory. They won overwhelmingly in these elections. And they take office in the context of Rodrigo Duterte's last six years of sidelining liberal forces, of campaigns against the free press, and generally of a shrinking space for civil society within the Philippines. What do these next six years portend for that kind of creeping authoritarianism that we've seen in the Philippines over the previous six years? Yeah, it doesn't bode well for those liberal forces that you refer to, Mark. Bong Bong hasn't been that articulate in his views around policy, domestic or foreign policy, during the campaign. He dodged questions as much as possible. So we aren't, you know, even after you know, some time after the election. Now, we're not able to flesh out and really understand what policies he's going to follow and be direct with. But with Sarah on his shoulder as the vice president, we've got to imagine that if the drug war isn't to continue per se in name, maybe there'll be a rebranding. There's not going to be the full-scale investigation that the country needs to get to the bottom of that and look at the depth of the 20, maybe 30,000 extrajudicial callings that have happened over the last six years under the brand of the war on drugs, as well as other human rights abuses. Particularly under Duterte's time was the practice of red tagging, of tagging liberal allies as a so-called red, a communist, an, an enemy of the state. And that became really pernicious. So that went against lawyers, journalists, activists, even academics, where from time to time, they would publish sort of a matrix of the enemies of the state. And that's had crippling impacts on people's lives, as you can imagine, and on the sort of liberal inroads that they can be made in domestic politics. And I, I can't see how that tactic, which has served the Duterte clan very well, being put to one side and replaced with anything else by the Marcos clan with Sarah there. So sadly, I think we're in for something of the same, maybe some slight rebranding, but these policies have had a devastating effect and nothing bodes well for their continuance, I'm afraid. To what extent does Sarah Duterte share her father's bombast and outlandish behavior? And to what extent is she, as vice president, able to steer policy? 
As vice president, she's largely ceremonial. The previous vice president under Duterte was a liberal, Lenny Robredo, and, and while she was a thorn in his side to speak out against things like the drug war, she wasn't able to do anything. Under a different administration, Sarah may be given more responsibilities. Maybe she'll be given a post as secretary of state for some department. There's talk of her being the secretary of state for education. And so one of her core policies, the only policy they really held to both Bong Bong and Sarah during their campaign was to implement compulsory ROTC service for college students. This is really quite pernicious as well. This is going to militarize the society of the Philippines even more. I should say for those not in the United States, ROTC is Reserve Officer Training Corp. It's a way for college students and even high school students to be socialized into the military and receive training as students. Yeah, receive sort of basic training. There's usually an officer class to that as well. This mirrored what goes on in the US, in the Philippines for quite some many years, but they want to implement that as a compulsory level of service, which is difficult because in the Philippines, during the, the Marcos dictatorship, because it was the army that did the bidding of the president, carried out much of the violence, a lot of the trust of the society in the Philippines was lost in the military. And it's taken an awful long time for that to be rebuilt. You know, I've worked very closely with Filipino military people who've been to the US to the UK to Sandhurst and West Point to get all their training. They're very credible and good people. And over the last six years under Duterte, all that goodwill has been lost because the military have got back in bed with politics. Society has become much more militarized. And so I expect that to take. Sarah herself, yes, is quite bombastic, like her father. Slightly different shades, perhaps. But there's some fairly famous footage of her in Davao. This is Sarah Duterte, mayor of Davao City. This is Sarah Duterte when things don't go her way. The target of her rage is Sheriff Ape Andres. He was carrying out a court order to tear down houses in a slum area. Duterte says she'd asked for a two-hour delay so she could ask the residents to peacefully dismantle their homes. He ignored her request and got in return four blows to his left eye, face and back. She's certainly capable of grabbing headlines just like her father. On foreign policy, Rodrigo Duterte somewhat surprisingly, at least early on in his administration, started to warm ties with China. This is despite the fact that the Philippines and China have an ongoing territorial dispute over islands in the South China Sea, yet Rodrigo Duterte you know, had generally warm relations with China. What do we expect from Bong Bong Marcos in terms of how he might balance the Philippines' historic security alliance with the United States, with the Philippines' relationship with China? I think that's really interesting. And to be honest with you, I think he's feeling it out for himself. He has to his credit, employed quite a few technocrats thus far into positions. And one of those is a career diplomat in the foreign policy position, a guy called Enrique Manalo. And that bodes well for a serious person to look after foreign policy for the Philippines if, if it's not to bong bonds tastes or interests. And he's probably, given his previous utterings on the topic is going to talk about sovereignty, going to talk about territorial integrity, which play all well to the South China Sea issue. However, I think 
just like Rodrigo Duterte found out, Bongbon Marcos is going to find trying to get some leverage either out of China or the United States and find itself to a path to enlightenment for the Philippines between these two powerful forces is going to be very, very difficult. Rodrigo Duterte ultimately talked very strongly about pushing back against US influence, for which he has a fair point, and perhaps cozying up to China, a more closely aligned regional superpower, of which you can understand, but really got nowhere with that. The foreign investment promised from China never materialized. The infrastructure projects which Duterte promised off the back of that never materialized. And so we still have a fairly close security relationship with the United States. So it'll be interesting to see how much the Philippines leans on the United States to assert its sovereignty in the South China Sea of the disputed islands. The other big policy issue which will come to the fore pretty quickly for Bong Bong will be something called the Enhanced Defence Cooperation Agreement. And that really is the pen and paper, the legitimacy of all the US bases and military personnel in the Philippines, which makes it that landing spot for the pivot to Asia. So is there going to be a moment in the coming weeks or months or early in Bong Bong's tenure in which he will have to somehow confront that U.S. military alliance and, you know, as you said, put pen to paper and sign agreements? I think all parties will avoid that. I think the U.S. will avoid putting Bong Bong in a difficult position where he has to choose. I think the Chinese will as well. And I think Bong Bong will avoid that. So I imagine actually for the next few months, we'll see a lot of hand-holding. I know Bong Bong has been invited to Washington to meet Biden and the foreign minister of China has already been to Manila, who was the first guest actually. So they're all making plays and, and making good positive noises. I don't think any crescendo to this relationship is going to happen anytime soon. There are other things though, which might force the US's hand. I mean, the historic relationship with his father, I think, is going to cast a light on the U.S. relationship with the Philippines back in the spotlight after the 70s and, and obviously his exile. But Maria Reza, the famous journalist who won the Nobel Prize, she's facing jail, trumped up charges in the Philippines, entirely politicized under Duterte reign, have rolled over now into the Marcos administration. And again, with Sarah's influence, I think she's facing jail. And that will put the US and Western allies in a very difficult position. Are they going to speak out and object against that? And then, of course, there are other sort of dissidents and, and famous people languishing in jail, not least a sitting senator of the Philippines, Leela de Lima, who's already been in jail for five and a half years. So it kind of feels a little bit churlish, maybe spoken about Maria Reza, who hasn't gone to jail yet when one female senator has been in jail for five and a half years without any restitution. So I think these things are more impending spotlights maybe than the South China Sea, which I think all parties would rather just ignore. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time. This has been very helpful. No problem, Mark. Good to speak to you as always. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have any questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Please rate and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. 